Good morning, everyone. Well, my name is Ross Gilbert. It's great to have you out here this morning. I see some new faces, see some older faces, and I don't mean it's by age, but uh, it's great to have you out here. Uh, we're going to start a brand new study. We're going to go through the book of Ephesians, and uh, I'm really, really excited about this. Um, if you remember, uh, if you were here the first week, you might remember we, we kind of kicked this off, this church off, with looking at a passage in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. And at that point in Acts, it was uh, the Pentecost. It was the moment when uh, the church was born, right? The, the apostles, at the time disciples, they were kind of waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up. And so they're all kind of hanging out in the, the upper room when all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in all kinds of different languages in various tongues. And so they kind of stumbled out onto the street and speaking in all these various tongues. And at first, everyone thought they were drunk. Maybe they thought they were up too late cheering for the local sports team that won the championship. And so that was what was happening. And, and so they, they were confused at first. And then all of a sudden, they began to recognize their own language. And so they began to question, how do these simple Gal Galileans know my language? And, and that got their attention. And that was the whole point. That was what God wanted to do. He got their point, got their attention, so that Peter could preach the very first message, the very first sermon. And as a result of that, 3,000 people were saved. 3,000 people joined. Really, it was the birth of this new thing called the church. And, and please understand, the church didn't start as a building. It didn't start as an institution. It wasn't a nonprofit charity recognized by the Roman government. That wasn't what the church was. The church simply was a gathering was a group of people coming together. And that's really what this Greek word ecclesia, which we translate as church, simply means. It means a gathering, a coming together. And so now this, this new group, this new church is born. And in Acts 2.42, it tells us that what they began to do is they began to gather to study and learn the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and breaking of bread, and for prayer and worship. And so that was really the main crux of what they were doing there. The, we, we've done that this morning. That's really what we've been trying to do every time we get together. We, we've had the prayer and worship. We started that this morning with the song and, and the praying and so forth. And, but it doesn't end with singing. Please understand worship is so much more than just getting up and singing a song. Worship is anything we do for God. So that could be going to work. That could be cleaning your house. That could be doing the dishes, doing the laundry, cutting the grass. Whatever we're doing, we're doing in service to God, and that's our worship. And so, it, yes, it includes singing, but it's way bigger than that. And prayer is just simply talking with God and communing with God and relating with God. And so they would do that, and then they would, they would fellowship together. And that's such an important aspect here that we need to, to constantly remind ourselves. Often what they would do is they would gather around a meal. They would sometimes call it a love feast. And they would just hang out. They would do life together. And we have to understand that, that it was critical back then and is equally critical today. Despite living in a world and a culture that is so connected and we have various friends and, and, um, and Facebook and social media and so forth, people feel isolated and alone. And that community is so important. Not just to have people to come alongside together to do things, to go to the movies and so forth, but a group of people that truly accept one another, truly love one another. And so we define community in this way. It, community is a, a place of grace where you are safe to trust others with your most authentic self, knowing that you'll be loved and accepted in return. It's not a place where you come when you've got it all figured out. That's sort of like, I will get myself cleaned up and then I'll take a bath. 
It just doesn't make sense. Community is a place where you just come together with all your mess, with all your perceived flaws and shortcomings, and to experience this love and this grace of Jesus Christ. And so that was integral to this new thing called the church. And then finally was the apostles' teaching. They would come together and learn from the disciples, learn from those who walked with Jesus so they could understand this new thing called the new covenant. What does that mean? And how do we now connect and relate to God? How do we live out of this new truth? And so that's what they would be doing. And so that's what we're going to do. That's what we're doing each, each time we gather is we study, study God's word. We study our Father's word, in particular, the, the epistles, the letters of the New Testament, because they outline for us, they explain to us what does it mean to live in this new covenant. So I'm really excited as we're going to kick off now. We're going to uh, kind of go verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. Now, what that means is we're not going to do Ephesians six chapters in six weeks. We're going to go slower than that. And the reason for that is it allows us to really dig deeper into the Father's Word. And, and also, it prevents us from skipping over the passages that we might not feel so comfortable with. But we can begin to really understand what Father's saying to us and how He's encouraging us. So, With that, uh, stand with me as I read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we embark on this journey through the book of Ephesians, this letter that Paul has written to the church Would you help us through your Holy Spirit to have an understanding, not just to gain knowledge, not just to gain wisdom, but Father, to really understand what does it mean to have you in us, to experience life in you, for you to be expressed your life through us to one another. And may that begin to build a community of grace that floods this whole area and that your name may be known. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So before we get into this passage, I want to explain a little bit about why this book, of all the epistles by Paul and Peter and James and John, why are we starting off with this book? And and the reason, simple answer is I think because this book does such a great job explaining about church, life in the church, and who we are and how we are and how we live this way. I love how one commentator, he summarized it this way. He says, what is the appeal of this book? In my judgment, it is just this. It presents the basic doctrines of Christianity comprehensively, clearly, practically, and beautifully. I can put it another way. The focus for all other doctrines in Ephesians is the church as God's new society. So in a sense, the book links these truths of Christianity to us, God's people. In other words, it is practical. We are told who we are, how we came to be as we are, what we shall be, and what we must do now in light of that destiny. So that's an exciting intro. That's an exciting book for us to study. And one of the things that's kind of unique and interesting about this book is is the commentators have noted that in the original manuscripts, the, the words at Ephesus were kind of left blank. And so there was sort of like, a, and when they were copying out the, the, the letter, they left a space and put nothing in there. And so many commentators and theologians have surmised that this is what they call a circular letter, that, that Paul wrote this letter and, and it was for the Ephesians maybe, but it was meant to get passed around all the other churches. And, and so they left it blank so that the church in Laodicea can kind of scribble their name in there. 
or the church of Smyrna or Philippi or, or all these other churches, they could just simply put their name in there because it was written to them. So really what this is, is it's not a, a letter that was unique to a particular church. It was a letter to the churches. And, and that means it wasn't just the churches of Paul's time. It's a letter to the churches today. And so really what we should and what we ought to do is we ought to put our own name in there. And so we could read the passage this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at New Life Fellowship in Kitchener and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a letter that Father wrote through the Apostle Paul some 2,000 years ago for you and I. And so there's something for us today to really start to understand that. So I, I thought it'd be good for us to know what's the basic theme of, of the book of Ephesians. And, and there's a lot of different themes you could come up with that I think would be appropriate. But the one theme that I kind of settled in on that I thought does a great job explaining it is this idea of the mystery of Christ in you. I think that kind of summarizes the heart of what this book is about, the mystery of Christ in you. Now, we need to understand something about this word mystery, right? A, a mystery is not a riddle, right? A, a, a mystery is something far more profound than a riddle. What's a riddle? A riddle is something like this. What is black and white and red all over? I was going to say a penguin that rolled down a rocky slope, but a newspaper works as well, right? So it's a riddle. It's something that is clever, but once you figure it out, you understand it, right? And there's no more riddle or mystery or unknown about it. You've figured it out. But a mystery is something that you never really figure out. A mystery is something that you just keep exploring and exploring, and there really is no bottom to that. So for example, for me, women are a mystery. Can I get an amen from that one? Now, I don't mean that to be, to be, you know, cruel or put them down. It's actually a great compliment. It really is. Listen to it. Women, you're a mystery in the sense that you'll never be solved, but neither should you. You're far more profound and deep. And so really what, what it is for me as a husband, as a father of four girls, my job is to get to know the women in my life. And it's not to fully solve and satisfy, but to go on a journey of constant exploration. And sometimes that's fun, and sometimes it's less than fun. But nonetheless, it's all part of life and the journey. And so this idea here of the mystery of Christ in you, it's not a riddle. It's not something we just figure out. It's not something you're going to solve and go, oh, I've, I've got that now. I understand that now. I hear that from Christians all the time. Oh, I understand that now. And I think... How do you, little finite being, understand an infinite truth? It isn't the point of saying, I got it all. It's to explore, to learn more, to grow in. And so we have this mystery of Christ in you. And, and I think what's great about it is part of Ephesians is a Christ in you, the singular. It, it's, it's Christ in Mike, the, the individual. And we get to understand how God made that possible, that Christ could live in you, the individual, and how he now expresses his life through you, the individual. And so it talks about that in terms of different relationships and husbands and wives and parents and children and co-workers and bosses and friends and, and family members and it expresses all that. But it's more than just Christ in you, the individual. It's Christ in you, plural. If we were Southern Baptists, we'd say Christ in y'all. Because that's the reality of it. When we gather together as a group, it's not just Christ in me. It's not just Christ in you. It's it's Christ in us. 
And so we get to experience that. And that's what's so great about this book of Ephesians is it really starts to help us understand what that means. And so he's writing this letter to the saints who are faithful. Saints being the holy ones, it's who we are in Christ. Faithful meaning we've placed our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he says, grace and peace be to you. It is the, the common greeting in every letter that Paul wrote, be it Romans, Corinthians, uh, Galatians, even the personal one he wrote uh, to Onesimus. All of these letters are open with Paul saying grace and peace to you. But it's more than just a simple greetings. It's more than just simple dear. Paul was conveying something in these truths, something in these words that he, he wanted to stress to them that they would understand Grace and peace. Now, the word grace is interesting. Depending on the context, how it's used, it can mean all kinds of things, right? So if you're at a, a dining room table and someone says, let's say grace, does everyone around the table chant grace? Grace, grace, grace. Is that what we do? No, unless they're trying to make a joke, right? What do we do? People, maybe they bow their heads, maybe they close their eyes, they fold their hands, and someone prays a blessing of thanks for the meal. And so we say, well, that's grace, and then there's others that said, maybe if you're watching a, a medieval film and, and, and you see someone come up to the king, they might say, your grace. And there were, it's, a, it's a sign of reverence and respect. Or maybe if you're watching uh, ballet and, and, um, uh, or figure skating and you haven't fallen asleep yet, and the announcer says maybe that this is, the, they move with such grace, then you would understand that they moved smoothly and beautifully and, and, and with great skill. And so we, we use that term in various ways, but that's not how Paul was using this term grace. So Paul uses this term grace, and we have some common definitions that we've, we've tried to, to understand this, understanding what, what grace means. And so some of the common definitions that you've probably heard, the unmerited or undeserved favor of God. Meaning this, this favor, this love, this, this blessing, this goodwill, this attitude that God has towards you and I is independent of what you've done in your accomplishments. It's completely independent of what you have worked for. It's all about what God has done on our behalf. So that's the unmerited, the un, undeserved favor of God. There's the unconditional love of God. Think about that, unconditional. We use that term all the time in our in our day-to-day -day activities. But the reality is, you know, in this world, love is conditional. Behave well, treat me well, I will love you in return. You cross me, you betray me, you hurt me, my love will be pulled back. But not with God. God's love is not reactionary. It is not up and down depending on what you did today. You had a good day, I love you. You had a bad day, I love you less. God's love is steady the whole way, never changing. He decided to love you knowing all of your sins that you were about to commit. That's why he's not shocked by any of it. He's not surprised by any, by any of it. And that's why it's truly unconditional. Knowing all of the bad things you have or will do, God says, I set that aside. I love you anyways. That's the unconditional nature of God's love. It's the perfect acceptance of God. Or then there's the, the acronym that they've used, or the acrostic, sorry, that they've used, where they take the word grace and they, they make it into a phrase and, they, and it spells out to be God's riches at Christ's expense. Meaning the blessings, the riches, the, what God bestows upon you and I is not by what we've done, it's all by what Jesus has done. 
I liked how one author, Chuck Swindoll, he put it this way, and I've, I just think it's so great. He, he contrasts grace with two other concepts that we often get confused, which is justice and mercy. And he uses this illustration. Imagine you're speeding along, you're going 40 kilometers over the speed limit, and you get pulled over. Justice would be the, the police officer giving you a ticket for going 40 kilometers over the speed limit. Justice is you get what you deserve. Because you were speeding, you broke the law, you now pay the fine, you now pay the jail time, whatever. That's justice, getting what you deserve. But mercy would be different. Mercy would be, again, same thing, speeding, 40 kilometers over the speed limit, you get pulled over. But now what happens is the cop says, I'm going to show you mercy, I'm going to let you go. No tickets, nothing. Off you go, scot-free. You're no further ahead, but you're no further behind than when you started. That's mercy. Not getting what you deserve. But grace is something even better. Grace would be driving 40 kilometers along, uh, 40 kilometers over the speed limit and getting pulled over by that police officer. And not only does he not give you a ticket, but then he gives you a $100 gift certificate to go to the keg. And now you're getting something you don't deserve. And that's grace. Getting something you don't deserve. And that is hard, if we're honest, that is hard for us to accept. It really is. For, for some, they look at it and they say, that's not fair. That guy driving 40 over, he could have hurt someone. He deserves to be punished. And the, the truth of the matter is, you're right. He does, doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve the gift certificate. He doesn't even deserve getting off without a ticket. He deserves to pay the fine. But the reality is, if that were the case, if there was no such thing as grace, all of us would be in trouble. And you might think, well, I, you know, my sin's not that bad. You know, I, I haven't done too many things. And th that might be true. That might be true depending upon who you're comparing yourself to, right? So you compare yourself to Jim, then yeah, you're probably doing pretty good, right? <laughs> but Jim's not the standard, unfortunately. The standard is Jesus. It's God the Father. Remember, that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if that becomes the standard, it doesn't matter how little you sin, you've missed it. You've completely blown it. And we're all in trouble now. So it has to be by grace. It has to be something that God does for you and I on our behalf that we could not earn on our own. And so he bestows this grace towards us. And so people respond, it's not fair, and I agree with you, but I, I don't want it to be fair because I don't, I don't want it to be fair for me because then I'm in trouble. So I'm happy that it's not fair for anyone, that Jesus, out of his love, out of his grace, decided to make this happen. But there's another concern that people have with grace, and, and it's, it's a common one. I, I had a conversation with someone last night, and, and he was going down these lines, but his concerns about grace... And this idea that if you begin to really teach grace, if you really begin to share grace with other people, then they're going to take advantage of it. That they're going to, they're going to completely blow it, right? They're going to begin to live this sinful, license to sin, very immoral. They're going to do all kinds of things. They're going to be getting drunk and they're going to be, you know, overdosing or getting high on drugs and they're going to be treating people mean and they're going to be selfish and there's going to be all kinds of immorality and people are going to wear the same kind of underwear two days in a row. They're going to really take advantage of this thing called grace if, if you preach it too much. 
And so we need to balance grace with something else, with the law, with some rules, some regulations. And, and they're almost afraid that, that grace would just run too rampant with them. And, and I understand that fear. I understand their concerns, except they really don't understand grace. You see, all they think about grace is it's just a get-out-of-jail-free card. They just think it's, oh, that, you know, you don't get the ticket and you get the gift card, and, and so it's an, an excuse to sin. But that's not what grace is about. Grace is way more than just not getting or getting what you don't deserve. In Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul writes this. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. I was the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the personification of this grace. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. See, what they fail to understand is that grace isn't about just, you know, freedom to sin. It gives you the power to not sin. It actually begins to teach you how to live right, how to live upright. And so it's way more than just the unmerited or unearned favor of God. And Paul came to, I think, an understanding of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You might remember that passage. It was where, where Paul was going through a difficult time in his life. Earlier in the passage, he just explained how he was caught up to the heavenlies and he had seen things that were so great, so incredible. So you can imagine now, in fact, it was so great, he wasn't even allowed to share it. Now, you can imagine what would be the danger of this, right? When someone has that kind of a revelation, that kind of an experience, what would be the danger? That they would experience pride. Think about it. Everyone gets together at the dinner party or a gathering and, and one person starts to boast about, oh, you know what? I was, I was down at the game and I saw it all happen and I was right there in courtside and I gave a high five to, to Kyle Lowry when he was holding the trophy. It was so great. It was amazing. And then along comes Paul. Well, that was pretty cool, I bet. But, you know, I was caught up to heaven and I saw where the angels eat and where they live, and, and I saw things, and, and, and he could go on. And so the danger for Paul was that he would think that he was something better than everyone else. So along comes this thorn in the flesh, and, and it's left intentionally vague. We don't know exactly what it was. Was it a physical ailment? Some people wonder, was there something wrong with his eyes? Was there something wrong with his back or his body because he was beaten? Was it something emotional, something he was struggling with in his soul? And there's all kinds of, of speculation about what this thorn in the flesh was. And I'm glad that he left it vague. Because think about it. If Paul says, I was sent this thorn in the flesh, it was back pain. Then what would we do? Everyone with back pain, what would we do? Oh, I got this back pain, but you know, it's just like the exact same thing the Apostle Paul got. Man, I, I guess God just thinks I'm something special. Doesn't want me to be too proud, so I've got you know, Paul's back pain. And we would begin to be proud over our back pain. And then the guy with the bad hip, he'd be like, oh, God just doesn't love me very much. I'm just such a horrible person, right? And we begin to compare and, and contrast and, and be critical of one another. So what's beautiful about this is he's left it vague so we can all relate to it. Maybe there's some physical pain in your life that you just can't seem to shake. Maybe there's some emotional struggles you're dealing with. All of this here, God says, I'm in this. 
And so Paul's prayer was the, the right prayer, the typical prayer. God, take this pain away. It's inhibiting me. It's making things difficult for me. Get rid of this pain. Rescue me from this pain. And God's answer was what? In 2 Corinthians 12, and verse 9, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. Look what he's doing. Look what he's equating his grace to. He says, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in your weakness. He's not talking about here the unmerited favor, the unconditional love of God, because that's not what Paul needs in this moment. What Paul needs in this moment is strength to overcome this thorn. And so he says, my grace, which is my power. See, we need to understand the grace of God is more than just the love of God. There's another aspect of grace, which is the empowering presence of Jesus Christ to live his life through you. The power of God in you today to face whatever situation you're up against. And so sometimes it's helpful to see these two sides or two aspects of God's grace. Paul had this in mind, I think, when he wrote in, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9 and 10. Here he writes, for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, by that unmerited favor, I didn't deserve this, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By God's love, his action, his choice, Paul was rescued and made an apostle. And his grace, this unmerited favor and love toward me did not prove vain, but I labored. I worked, I served, I did all kinds of things, even more than all the other apostles, yet not I. It wasn't me, but the grace of God in me. That, un, that, sorry, that, that empowering presence of Jesus. The fact that it was Christ through me who did all those actions. And so there's an aspect of grace that is more than just the love of God, it's the strength and power of God. See, have you ever looked at someone else's life and, and looked at what they're going through and wondered to yourself, I have no idea how they're managing it. Maybe, maybe they're coming to their end of their life. Maybe they're struggling with some kind of a terminal disease. And, and you can see them beginning to waste away. And yet, there's a peace about them. Or, or maybe they're, they're struggling through a difficult relationship or, or they're, they're dealing with problems at work or, or there's all kinds of uncertainty in their world, in their life. And you look at them and you say, how is it that you're keeping this together? Because if it were me, I'd fall apart. I don't know how you're doing it. Well, the reality is what God has done is he's giving to that person the grace they need for that day. So that person that's dying, they've been given dying grace we might think of it as. That strength, that power to face the end of their life. That person going through relationship difficulty, they've been given relationship grace. That strength, that love, that understanding to minister to whoever's with them. That person who's got problems at work, God's given them work grace so they can deal with what's happening at their job. Whatever you're up against, whatever you're facing, God's grace, his strength, his power will match the moment. Our problem often is that we are trying to deal with a situation that is not in the moment. We're trying to spend what grace God's given us today trying to figure out how we're going to solve and, and work and live in some kind of a future that has not yet come about. 
And so we're spending grace that we don't have. And that's why we're so, so run dry. Why we seem to struggle so much. Because you're trying to do things that God isn't wanting you to do in the moment. Because his grace is sufficient in the moment. Back in, uh, in 2012, that song that we had right before I got up to speak, Warren, by 10th Avenue North, was released. And uh, in our household, the Gilbert household, 2012 will always stand out as a, a very unique year for us. It was the year that my son Caleb was born, the, the, the fifth of, of five children born in seven years. And so you can just imagine doing the math, how, how difficult that was. If, if my wife, Joy, if she wasn't pregnant, she was definitely nursing, basically, for those seven years. And, you know, you moms, especially with little ones, you can understand how it wasn't that she didn't sleep much. She just didn't sleep. Um, the, the weight and the pressure of all that. And then, then she's married to me. I mean, that alone should be enough pressure. But so she's got all of this on her, not sleeping, little kids, a labor, delivery, nursing, and the problems that brings, married to me, someone who's in ministry and all over the place and weird schedules and so forth. And, and so in 2012, um, she, she burnt out. And I don't, I don't mean that in a, a light kind of exaggerated way. No, she, she hit rock bottom. She lost all hope. She didn't want to go on. And so in, um, in October of that year, six months after Caleb was born, um, I'm taking my wife into the psych ward of the hospital. And, and she, she crashed. She, she came to the end. And that has begun since then a long journey of dealing with mental health and healing and, and, and growing and so forth from that. But for a, a period of time, uh, not a short period of time after that, uh, she, she had very little in her. She was so burnt out that uh, she couldn't get out of bed some days. And so what ended up happening is I became not just dad, I was mom. And so I would get up and have to make breakfast for these kids and get them ready in the morning and get things sorted and all the cleaning and shopping. And, and, and for a time, I was kind of mom and dad. I was doing everything. And so this song, Warren, really kind of spoke to me. In fact, for a time, it was sort of my alarm when I'd wake up. And I would wake up and I remember I'd sit up and kind of swing my legs over the bed and just kind of sit there with my, you know, rubbing my face as you're sort of waking up. And, and these words would start to immediately run through my head. Listen to these words. I'm tired. I'm worn. My heart is heavy for the work it takes to keep on breathing. I know I need to lift my eyes up, but I'm too weak. Life just won't let up. And I know that you can give me rest, so I cry out with all that I have left. And my prayers are wearing thin. I'm worn even before the day begins. I'm worn, I've lost my will to fight. I'm worn, so heaven, so come and flood my eyes. I remember just being exhausted and and often I'd wake up and, and one of the first thoughts to my mind was, I hate my life. Because I was, I was tired, I was exhausted, but more than that, I was scared. What's going to happen to my bride? Is she ever going to get better? Is this, is this it? 
And there's so much uncertainty, there's so much fear, and it would have been really easy at that point just to fall back into bed and try to pull the covers over and just hope it all goes away. But you don't have that luxury because little kids, five of them, they're wonderful, but they don't care what's going on. They got to get fed. They got to get changed. They got to be looked after. And and so life's got to keep moving forward. And so in that moment, I had a choice. Do I trust that God is sufficient for me today? That he has given me today the grace that not just the grace of being dad, but the grace of being mom in in Viardis Steed, in Joy Steed. That he's given me the strength and the power to look after these little kids and the wisdom and insight to to parent them. Has he given me the grace to then go off to work and deal with people out there in the counseling and so forth? Has he given me that grace? And I had to say yes. And take one step at a time, trusting that that grace, that strength, and that power would be there. And so did I, did I do that perfectly every day? I think so. I think I, think I was pretty, no. <laughs> no. Good thing Joy's not here to call me on that one, but... No, I, did. I blew it more, probably more days than I thought I was doing well. It wasn't easy. It was a struggle. But that's where the struggle was. You see, the struggle you and I have to, to recognize is this. Will I trust? Will I, will I actually trust what I know to be true? It wasn't the struggle of, you know, to love my kids and so forth. That, that was the offspring of the battle of trusting. Because that moment I said, I'm going to trust you, Jesus. I'm going to trust in your power. I'm going to trust in your strength. That love showed up. That patience showed up. And it really, truly was supernatural. It wasn't of me. In that moment, it was Christ in me providing everything I needed in that moment. And what's amazing about that is it leads to peace. Right? It was grace and peace. Now, for Paul being a Jew, it was very common for Jews to, in their writing or when they meet one another, they would say, peace to you, peace to one another. And, and it would be the, the Hebrew word for shalom. And, and it really means more than just make things go, you know, be peaceful for you. It, it really is a blessing. It's may you be whole and, and entirely well. May you prosper in life. It was a blessing. And, and I can't help but think that's what Paul was thinking about when he wrote these words here, grace and peace to you, that this idea of peace that you would do well, that you would be healed and restored and redeemed, and that peace that comes from understanding God's grace. Yes, that unmerited, that love, that acceptance from God, but also that power of Jesus in you today. And it doesn't come from you. Because the last part of that passage, Paul reminds us that it all comes from God the Father through Jesus Christ. You and I don't have to do something to earn it, gain it, achieve it, accomplish it. All he's saying is, will you trust what you already believe? Will you rely on what you already know to be true? That I am sufficient for everything you need in the moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this incredible truth of power, of strength, of life, of grace. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would express that through us in a unique way. That you would be able to accomplish incredible things as we rely upon first your love for us, but also your power in us. And that 
those around us would experience Christ, that they would see his gentleness, his kindness, his goodness through us, and that we would be strengthened and healed in the process. Thank you for the grace you've given us today. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I want you to know church doesn't end here, right? Because church isn't a building, it's not a service, it's not Sunday morning. Church is who we are. So we get to go and enjoy being in the church. Go enjoy being in the church picking up your kids, enjoy being in the church fellowshipping, and then enjoy being in the church in your homes and in your workplaces, in your hobbies, in your friends. And if any of you are fortunate enough to go down to Toronto for the parade tomorrow, go be the church there. God bless you guys. Amen. Amen.